Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. As we gear up for award season, there's no better time to join us. By becoming a Vanity Fair subscriber, you'll gain exclusive access to our in-depth coverage of film, television, and the best of Hollywood. And that's just the beginning. Vanity Fair takes you inside the worlds of entertainment, culture, politics, and scandal, bringing you iconic images, era-defining stories, and much more. Get 15% off a year of digital access to Vanity Fair by visiting VanityFair.com and using promo code POD15 at checkout. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a full year of insights and exclusive digital access. Subscribe now. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Chief Critic Richard Lawson, and I'm here in New York studio with our digital director, Mike Hogan. Hey, Richard. On the line with our Hollywood correspondent, Nicole Sperling. Hi, Richard. And we were with Katie at some point. Hey, Richard. Um, we wanted to have Nicole on special for this episode just to kind of, now that Mike and I have recovered from the party, and, and Nicole, I assume you have recovered from the party, uh, just to kind of do a little postmortem, not just um, on what won and why it won, but also the show itself. So now we're welcoming Nicole Sperling, who I think has recovered from her Oscar night adventure enough to maybe look back and talk to us about it. Nicole, thank you for uh, getting up early to talk to us. Hi, guys. How's it going? I mean, we're, it's post-Oscars. We have this new freedom on all of our shoulders, don't we? Or maybe just naps? I think naps. I don't know. I don't feel <laughs> a sense of freedom yet. I'd like that, though. So, Nicole, you were at the Oscars. It seemed, based on your dispatches from the live blog, that you spent a lot of time hanging out at the bar, not because you wanted to drink, but because that's where all the action happens, right? Yes, I mean, you wouldn't believe it. Like, halfway through the show, that bar is completely packed. And it's not completely packed with, you know, unknowns. It's got, there were like three studio chiefs there. I saw Donna Lanely. I saw Kevin Sujahara from Warner Brothers. And like, Emma Stone, I think, spends the majority of her time at the Oscars in the bar. Um, <laughs> I feel like I see her every year there. Um, and then you've got... Um, Peter Farrelly and the whole Green Book crew was all out there, and Adam McKay was out there, Christian Bale. Like, they're all kind of hanging out. Do you think people are more likely to spend all their time hanging out at the bar if they don't think they're going to win? Like, you know, you say Peter Farrelly was out there, but presumably they came back in time for all the big categories, or, like, is it just everybody? Well, they all kind of know when their categories are going to be announced. So Adam McKay was, like, worried that he needed to get back in time for editing, even though he wound up losing that award. But they're kind of, they're cognizant of that. They just need a break from sitting in those seats for over three hours, I guess. So who was the, who was, like, the most popular person you saw getting schmoozed in the bar? I imagine Emma Stone might spend all the time there because everyone wants to talk to her. Why not? <laughs> well, it come, they come and go. So there's not just one person crowded around. I mean, Lady Gaga never came out, and that would have caused, like, a huge uproar if she did. So she was never out there. The Roma crew was never out there. Bradley Cooper was never out there. And no one gets really mobbed. They kind of get spoken to, and then people move away. It's weirdly casual. 
Is it actually a good place to watch the show? I feel like I keep hearing that it's like loud. You don't get to hear anybody's speeches. And it, it seems a little bit chaotic if you want to like watch the way the Oscars play out. Yeah, no, it's terrible to actually watch the show. There's two <laughs> televisions. There's two bars. So one is kind of in this little alcove. And that one actually has the sound on. And if people actually want to hear the show, you have a better chance in there. And in fact, the room went silent when screenplay was announced. And then people went nuts when Spike Lee's name was announced. And in fact, I saw this man standing next to me just bawling. And Reggie Hudlin, who had produced the Oscars a few years ago and is a prominent black producer, was really engaged in that speech. And there was huge applause for that. That was a big moment. Queen Latifah, I think, was in the room at that moment. So that was great. And then outside of that little alcove is the bigger bar. And that bar has no sound. So you can kind of, you can watch the screen, but you can't hear anyone's speeches or anything like that. So Nicole, it's no no uh, secret that this was sort of a controversial Oscars year for a lot of different reasons. Were people talking about that stuff or they were they more sort of just in the moment excited about what was happening, you know, category to category? I think at that point, everyone was kind of exhausted from talking about the, all the drama mm-hmm. in the lead up to the Oscars and they were just engaged in the each category. And it moved so quickly, I will say, that there wasn't a lot of downtime to actually get into those discussions. And I think by that point, everyone was just kind of ready to see it end, right? Well, Nicole, what was the reaction when Olivia Coleman won? Because we were on the Oscar party red carpet and everybody basically lost their minds. Well, I was back in my seat by then. And yeah, that was a huge moment. I mean, everyone went nuts because they were so surprised that she won. So it was great to be in the room for that because, you know, you're so used, everyone just assumed Glenn Close was going to win. And I think when that happened, the room went nuts. People were really excited. And her speech was so great that it seemed all worth it. Watching at home, it felt like the show was really zippy. It felt like a lot easier to watch than some other shows. Did, Did you notice that in the room too? Did the speediness affect everybody's mood? Well, because I'm in and out, it's hard to like catch how the mood is. Um, but I think people were happy with how fast it went along, especially because you're not being fed in that room and there's no drinks and you have to get up and leave if you want to, you know, eat or drink. So I think because of that, they're happy when it goes fast. And afterwards, I talked to the president of, or I'm sorry, the CEO of the Academy, um, Don Hudson, and I talked to Donna Donna Gelati, who produced the show, and they were pretty thrilled with how it went. And considering, as Donna Gelati said, she had zero support from the entertainment press and was getting criticized by everybody, she was very happy that she was actually able to pull something off. Didn't you tell me that she was sort of saying that she never wanted to host from the beginning anyway and, and that she was right and everybody else was wrong? Apparently, yeah. She, I mean, <laughs> in her version of history, she said when she came in in October, she questioned whether or not they needed a host at all. And then she continued to say, and once Kevin Hart the debacle happened, no one wanted to be the host anyways. So we just proceeded without it. And she was all about, she said, as corny as it sounds, I wanted it to be about the community of artists in the room, which, you know, for better or worse, I guess that's what she did. Well, and sorry, one more question, sort of following up on that. I feel a little bit like with Bohemian Rhapsody and Green Book, there may be a little bit of a backlash to the press, like that people are annoyed that critics and the media are trying to tell them what to think of movies when they're the ones who make movies and we should just be kind of sitting back and like being grateful to even be able to watch them. Do you? Am I crazy or is there a little taste of that out there? 
I don't think you're crazy at all. And in fact, um, in the New York Times piece, when Brooks Barnes went and interviewed 20 Academy members, one of them said he was voting for Green Book specifically because he didn't want anyone telling him what movies he was to like and not like. And he found it insulting that the entertainment press was kind of anti-Green Book and its whitewashing of civil rights issues. Uh, Good to know. <laughs> I mean, as, as someone who is part of the entertainment press, Nicole, and who's been covering all of this, like, because the Academy did that too, you know, talking about how it was fake news that they're going to be cutting those segments and really striking back against the way people were covering this. I felt a little like my hackles were raised. How did you feel like they were trying to kind of blame all this chaos in the Academy on the press getting it wrong somehow? Oh, that really made me mad <laughs> that they had the gall to say that we um, were the ones who misinformed the public about the four categories that were being cut from the show. I mean, we printed his letter that he wrote. The Academy has proven one thing this season in that their ability to communicate is terrible. From the moment they announced the popular Oscar with no details attached to it, to this four category situation where people just thought the categories were being cut completely. They have not been able to articulate what their plans are. And I think it's because they have not been sure of their plans. So their communication has been awful. And I don't think anyone would dispute that, whether or not they're calling it fake news. I don't know. Are there factions within the academy that's pushing the change on one side and then backing out of it? Or is it the same people proposing the change and then, and then rescinding it? No, my understanding, I mean, the thing is they have a 54-member board, right? So when they make to please all of them is next to impossible. But, I mean, at least as far as I know about the popular Oscar, what I heard in that situation was that I think they had agreed as a body to pursue an additional award that would somehow honor bigger blockbustery films, but with very little detail. And they were not going to call it a popular Oscar. And then I was told that after everyone left the room, they created this press release and without the board's approval and announced this popular Oscar thing with no details and that, you know, doomed it from the start. So it really seems like a terrible communication problem. And I think there are tons of Academy members that are really upset with how the board is being run and how the place is handling their messaging that I think things are going to be very interesting at that postmortem meeting when they have when they all get together after the show to talk about what was good and what was bad. And it'll be shocking if there aren't big changes being made. Well, it's interesting because big changes to be made, yes. But also, I mean, I mean, from my perspective, and it seems like, Nicole, the people in, in either the bar or at actually in the auditorium, I thought the show went well. You know, like we'd spent so much time thinking it was going to be bad. So I wonder, because it went well, maybe they have less to reckon with? Or maybe, I guess, maybe it was sort of just like a quick fix for some deeper underlying problems. Also, the ratings were up, which is, I'm sure, very yeah. important to them. Well, I mean, they were able to pull it off in the end, and I think they hired a good producer. I think she really did a good job producing that show. I mean, even just the Lady Gaga, Bradley Cooper moment and how that was shot was really well done. If we're going to pick out highlights, but um, their bigger issue is the reputation of the Academy as a whole beyond the show, you know? And they have a museum to launch later this year. Like, they have lots of things to do. I mean, they've brought in a new... COO, who's going to be getting up to speed soon, this woman from the WNBA, who I hear is really impressive. So that will hopefully turn things around. But as far as a body of esteemed artists, they're, they've really showed 
<laughs> they look like a bunch of high schoolers. Yeah, and, and to have Laura Dern be the only person building that museum, I mean, by hand, it just feels like they, they could maybe <laughs> hire her You guys should see her out there with that hard hat and the chisel. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's really sad. People bring her water. I feel like another division between those of us who cover the Oscars and the actual community of people who give out the Oscars or are part of the membership is that a lot of people who love the Oscars are basically like, look, it's a niche thing now. Embrace it. Own it. And we've talked about this on the show. It seems to me that people in the entertainment community are much more sort of comfortable with the idea that something needs to change. It can't just be a show where you give out 24 awards and, and not much else. Do you think that's right? Do you get a sense that people feel like the show does still need some kind of reinvention um, and that, you know, it's 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 not just going, defaulting back to how things have been is not really the way forward? Well, I don't know. I think there's two distinct camps because there are some that agree that it's a niche becoming more of a niche thing just like all other award shows and that we're going to hand out our 24 awards uh, ratings be damned and we're going to do it the way we want because we want to honor the artistry that goes into making movies and then there are others who are more realistic like we got to speed this up like this is too long this is the new age we are trying to get a bigger audience or even just the same audience to continue turning in when there's all these other distractions so I think they're fighting with among themselves, just like they're kind of fighting when they're picking awards. You know, they they can be incredibly progressive and then incredibly, you know, retrograde in terms of their choices. So right. the academy's changing so fast; their membership's growing so quickly in this effort to diversify, which I applaud them for. But it's bumpy along the way. Nicole, we were talking on Monday's show about how there's a lot of people who are upset about Green Book on Twitter and then a lot of Academy members who think it's totally fine. Do you have a read on whether or not people think that that win is a step backwards for this new diversifying Academy or if there's still a lot of people who think that that's what Best Picture should be? Well, I, I think that's in also incredibly divisive. I mean, there's a big group of people who are involved in Green Book all the way down to Steven Spielberg, whose Amblin Entertainment produced the thing. So there's a huge faction of people who are happy at one. There's another faction of people are, that are happy at one because it means Roma lost. And that meant that Netflix didn't get their best picture win, which to a lot of people was um, going to be a really bad thing because it was going to be the first time if they had won, it would have been the first movie with zero box office to win best picture. And what does that mean for rules going forward? Um, so, you know, they're adjusting to the, to the times as they are right now. I think the other thing about Green Book's win is just that while every other award is chosen by who gets the most vo votes and that's it, you know, the best picture is still done with this preferential balloting. So Green Book might not have been the, the one that most people picked first choice, right? It was probably that there was no first choice that got more than 50% of the vote. So they had to do this preferential balloting and go to like, you know, the next lowest one. You know how that all works. And so it's not really a true reflection of what people loved the most because of how that system works. And it's weird that it only works for the best picture category and then everything else is done, is voted on straight away. Do you think people are comfortable with preferential ballot? Do they think that that is something that needs to change some people within the academy? I think a lot of people don't understand it. And I do think there are voices out there that think it needs to change. I don't know if it will. I don't know if that's getting too far in the weeds when they have so many other issues to deal with first. I mean, and then there are a bunch of other people who love Green Book and are thrilled at one and are tired of getting railed on for picking the, like, 
racial reconciliation fantasy story as their best picture winner. I, I do find it interesting. You wrote about participant in one of our special issues and, and on our site. And I, I do think it's super interesting that they were, you know, involved in both Roma and Green Book. So at least they were win-win for the night. They were win-win for the night. And you would think that those two factions would be so separate from each other, but to have a participant at the center of both is really fascinating, you know? Like yeah, it, and for people at home, Participant is, um, who might not be aware, Participant is, well, you, you can explain it. I mean, they have this sort of noble purpose, right, is the idea? It's founded by Jeff Skoll, who was one of the original um, creators of eBay, so he's a gazillionaire, and he founded this company with this mission to create movies with kind of a social message or movies that matter. And, you know, I think when they... They knew they had something special with Roma, and they knew that Netflix was going to be a good home for it because of their ambitions for what they thought this movie could do. And I think for Green Book, they were trying to make a little movie and giving Peter Fairley a chance to do something outside of his wheelhouse. I don't think anyone thought when they went into making that film that it was going to wind up being the Best Picture winner. I don't think anyone had that on their minds. Yeah, I think that's always worth keeping in mind. I mean, first of all, that this began as ostensibly a kind of progressive... <laughs> you know, activist effort to make the world a better place. And I do think a lot of this is sort of a progressive, intra-progressive generation gap that's happening. And then also, you know, when you read about, oh my God, they didn't reach out to the family and talk to them. Like, if this had been probably the dinky little movie that they all would have assumed it would have been, then it wouldn't have been that big of a deal. It's, it's, it's the interesting sort of price of success. You know, I don't want to overly defend the thing because I have I have issues with it, like everybody or like a lot of people. But, but it is worth sort of keeping in mind the perspective of it. Well, there's a weird fine line with that movie where, like, if it doesn't, because they were debating whether to open it at Toronto or play it at a festival at all, and if it hadn't, like, it could just be a VOD release. Like, it was such a weird, like, yeah. like you know, it got such a bump from that reception, but... You gotta keep in mind that the family were not the executors of his estate, and they went to the executors of his estate for the rights, and it wasn't his family. So, when you start there, and they're making this little dinky movie, they're probably thinking like, well, who do, why do we need to talk to them? This is from Nick Villalonga's perspective. This is Tony's story, right? I mean, now we're going to get way into the weeds if we go well, there. Well, and I'll say one more thing, and, and Joanna's not here to discuss it, and I want to talk with her. But she, she pointed out, rightly, it was not the greatest look that Mahershala came up and thanked Don Shirley and his family. You know, Peter Farrelly's big thing was like, and let's not forget Viggo Mortensen, which you know, was annoying to Twitter. But it's also worth remembering that without Viggo Mortensen, none of this gets made because Viggo Mortensen is the guy, thanks to, this is something I learned doing a story a long time ago, thanks to The Lord of the Rings, if you're globally famous, you can get independent movies made because they know they're not going to lose that much money because they can open your movie in like Budapest and all over the world and, and basically like make their money back. So I think that's what that was. Like it, Vigo got passionate about this thing. Um, Vigo had a rough run with with a not good misstatement, you know, along the way. And and so I, I think it was. It's just interesting, like the sort of the sort of industry view of all this, and I think that helps create this divide and. And feeling that people are being mistreated, you know, and and I think on the one hand, the people on the outside can't be expected to understand all these nuances, and on the other hand, the people on the inside sometimes are missing the bigger picture of how it all looks. So it, it's an interesting thing. No, I totally agree with you, and I think, you know, Mahershala and Vigo met two years ago on the Academy on the Oscar circuit with Captain Fantastic and Moonlighting. Ah, right, of course. And so they liked each other. 
so much during that time. And then, you know, Vigo signed on and Mahershala's like, yeah, I'll play this guy opposite Vigo. I mean, he's a great actor. Why wouldn't I take this part? We get to do a buddy road trip comedy. Right, <laughs> with right, Peter right. Fairley. Right. You know, that's what we're making. So, Nicole, you've already mentioned what I think are a couple of, like, the big takeaways from the season. Like, the Netflix bias is still there. Like, learn to do your oppo research so that even if you think you're making a dinky movie, you might have a bunch of people trying to take you down. Is there any other big picture takeaway from you from the way this entire season has played out? People have said it's been nastier than usual. Do, do you think we learned anything from all this? Well, I think the other thing is that Harvey Weinstein may no longer be in the Oscar conversation, but he trained a lot of people who are working in this industry, and they were using all his tactics all season long. Can you, without naming names, can you provide some highlights? I, I, I think the first one that springs to mind are the sort of twin revelations about Peter Farrelly and Nick Vallelonga that hit the same day, which which uh, the Ankler has sort of floated a theory of where that came from, and that person did work for Harvey. Any other big ones stand out to you? I mean, those are the biggest ones, because after, after Green Book won the PGA, Netflix knew they were up against something, a real formidable challenger, and I think they were trying to take that down in any way they could, and why not bring out those tweets and <laughs> Peter Fairley's, you know, interest in showing his genitals to women. <laughs> <laughs> it was really great to talk to him after that came out. So creepy. But um, <laughs> You're going to do a combat pay for you, Nicole, after this season. Yeah, right. That and Nick Vallelonga's like new movie he's trying to make. What is it called? Does anyone remember the title? Uh, that's Amore. The character named Patty Amore. I believe. Patty Amore. Yeah. Can't wait to see that. I'm sure that'll get a wide, wide audience, a big audience. Um, yeah. No, I think that's the most concrete one. But you know, the Green Book guys were also Harvey employees at one time. I mean, he's his employees are at all the studios, so. You know, yep. his tactics are still living, even though he's no longer in the game. Does, when you talk about how Roma would have been the first Best Picture winner without box office and people felt weird about that, do you think that Netflix at least cracked some of the resistance to them this season? I mean, Roma did win a lot of statues. It does seem like they made progress, even if they didn't get that Best Picture win that they seemingly spent a lot of money to get. No, I think they made a tremendous amount of progress. And I mean, let's remember, this was a black and white foreign language film that almost won Best Picture without being in theaters or in, you know, theaters for however week, many weeks they were during the week, four walls, not really in a... With no stars. I mean, you could keep going about with, with all the hurdles. Yeah. And what they also proved, so they may have spent $50 million if that number is in fact accurate, but that what they showed to everyone is that they're really in the movie business. They also aired a commercial for the Irishman during the Academy Awards, which let's not kid ourselves if that's not in the Oscar race next year, I don't know what is. Um, and so I think they made huge strides and I think it's the horses out of the barn. I mean, I don't, I don't think they can change the rules. I think Netflix has proven that you can put a movie in theaters three weeks before and kind of find the loophole in the Academy rules and get away with it. And they're gonna be really hard to compete with because they're willing to pay the, so much money up front. Well, you said before it had zero box office. Probably, to be perfectly accurate, it probably had like $150,000 box office or something like that, right? Because they did, they did release it for, in that obligatory run. But they rented out the theaters, so they, they bought the theaters out outright. Oh, so they didn't actually sell tickets? 
They sold tickets, but I think they might have even given the ticket money back to. I mean, they're not doing it in a traditional way right. where the exhibitors are renting the films and then they're sharing in the revenue, which is what the exhibitors desperately want. And you know, they're saying that Scorsese wants more of a um, traditional release this year for The Irishman, and we'll see if they evolve their thinking further. Because right now, the big chains won't play. The movie at all it's the t it's the little independents that are saying yeah you can rent out our theaters it's fine right 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 it's funny i interviewed ron howard on the uh vanity fair carpet and asked him about this and said you know do you think that the success of roma makes because because ron howard is doing his uh hillbilly elegy adaptation with netflix and he said you know i said does the success of roma make it a more hospitable place for filmmakers and he was like yeah but Marty is doing The Irishman. He said, I hear it's really good. You know, like if, if Scorsese's doing it, that does sort of like take down all the barriers at, at some level. And certainly anyone who's a filmmaker can now say, look, Scorsese did it. So, you know, don't complain to me. Right. I just wonder if Scorsese is going to ask for more of a real theatrical release. I, I just can't imagine yeah. that he's going to be comfortable with this three week thing. Granted, it may have stayed in the theaters longer, but I just... I think he's going to want it on the big screens across the country. Yeah, you think about he, a man who made Hugo a movie about the magic of going to the movies, about him giving up on that entirely be kind of weird. Right. And, you know, I mean, it is money Netflix is leaving on the table. I know they have this whole thing about it's all about our subscribers and we need to get the movies to our subscribers right away. But there's so much on Netflix. I don't think the subscribers care. Like if Irishman is in theaters two months before they get it on their service, are they really going to be that upset when there's that many episodes of Big Mouth yet to watch? <laughs> <laughs> I also am curious, you know, how hungry Netflix will remain because, you know, like... The Fox got almost all the way into the hen house, but like they didn't get that top prize. So I just wonder like if Sarandos is like, okay, well we gotta double down next year, you know, like because that's the barrier I think that like ultimately has to be completely broken through. I agree with you, Nicole, that like they made huge strides. I mean, getting all those prizes for a movie that like was a difficult ask, you know, regardless of, of what platform it was on. So I'm just wondering if they're gonna like redouble their efforts or if they'll be satisfied with these inroads. I I, I kinda don't think so. Right, I don't think so either. I don't think they'll ever be satisfied until they have total domination. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about the Huns who are invading, right? Not, not, not Netflix. You're right. I wonder if they're thinking about the, the one kind of flaw in the strategy is that Roma went from a film that when Richard and I saw it in Telluride, you were rooting for it so hard because of all the things you say. You know, it's about an indigenous domestic worker, the, the kind of person, I mean, it is so interesting uh, as a foil to Green Book, that this is the kind of person who, who is so decentered so often and becomes the center of the film. Uh, it's in black and white. It's in not, not only, you know, not English, but it's not even Spanish, a lot of it. Um, it's in Mistech. And on and on and on. It's long. It's like sort of, you know, incredibly intense. And by the end of the season, after however many millions of dollars got spent on it, it felt like this big thudding sort of overlord of Oscar season. And I don't think people were psyched to pull the lever for it. And, and so I think that that's, you know, I don't know how you solve that. Maybe that's just a, a natural sort of byproduct of going really hard at something. But it, it seemed like there might be a way to modulate next time. Well, there's a value in restraint, certainly. Yes. Look, am I excited that a, a quote of mine was in big letters on a billboard on Sunset Boulevard? Yes, I was. I, that, that, that's exciting. Yes. But at the same time, like, yeah, you're right, Mike, that like 
the way that that film changed shape over the course of however many months, like, was very, it was pretty thorough. I mean, it really went from this little underdog, you know, you know, Katie, you seeing it after Toronto being like, there's no way it'll win Best Picture. Turns out you were right. But, like, you know, it seemed scrappy and sort of, you know, had a lot to prove. And then... Well, it seemed magical that it even existed when we first saw it. Like, how the hell did this get made? And then you're like, oh, it got made because it's part of a strategy and this takes the romance out of it. So I don't know if they can modulate that going forward or or if it's just inevitable. And I think the other thing is because it got it became so big in the eyes of academy voters in terms of with the campaign and how much they spent that once a lot of people saw it at home especially I think there were a lot of people shaking their heads saying they didn't get it. Like, they didn't get the artistry. They didn't see the beauty of the whole thing. And it was kind of fell flat for a lot of voters. I think that also took shape, too, as as kind of misguided as that is. Some people just were not into that well, film. It, that happens every year, you know. And, and I think, you know, I think of Lady Bird. I think of... Um even Moonlight. I mean, you know, there's a certain... Well, I guess I think Moonlight kept it, and that's maybe part of the reason why it won. It kept feeling like a surprise to everyone who watched it, and you sort of... Each person was like, ooh, this will never win, but I'm going to vote for it, you know, versus like, am I really going to sort of anoint, anoint this thing or be part of the crowd that says this is the greatest goddamn thing ever? And Moonlight had this sort of more boutique, artisanal campaign of an A24 film, you know? it was yeah. It was a little bit more... Um, I don't know, maybe the, maybe the gorilla marketing is a bit more curated, yeah. Yeah. yeah, this just feels more like, you know, when something like Birdman wins over Boyhood or the King's Speech wins over the social network. It's like the thing that the critics and everyone tells you is like the high piece of art and other people say, you know what, I'm just going to vote for the thing that I like better. And in this case, somehow it was Green Book. Mm-hmm. Um, Nicole, I wanted to ask you about another sort of, well, the big kind of, I, I guess, arguably upset win of the night, which was Glenn Close losing to Olivia Colman uh, in Best Actress. My theory is that people just kind of assumed, oh, well, Glenn's going to win, so let me vote for my personal favorite. And certain, you know, maybe that was Olivia Colman. What do you think happened there? How do you think that this kind of crazy surprise happened? I think you're right. I think that is what happened. I think also Olivia had made such an impression with her quirky speech at the BAFTAs, and she was kind of just this delight on the circuit. And while Glenn, I, I do, I think people assumed Glenn was going to win. I don't think anyone had any ill will for Glenn at all, but somehow Olivia just squeaked on through, and I think it was the underdog status that she kind of maintained the whole season. And wasn't there something about how she couldn't be on the circuit as much because she was filming The Crown? So, like, the fact that she snuck through without being able to shake as many hands was even more impressive? Yeah, that's true. That's true. And I did hear... Glenn had already changed into her gown when she was, you know, for our party at the, and she was at the governor's ball and she was walking out of the ball and they were like remarking on her dress with that like drapey kind of beating that she had on. And she was like, oh, if only I had this on earlier, maybe I wouldn't have lost. (laughs) So she believes in the, uh, in the theory about the gold dress means you're going to win and maybe now she's cursed it. No, well, she yeah, because she had changed out of the gold dress by then. Into her black dress of mourning, which I thought was sort of, <laughs> you wonder had she won if she would have, you know, kept the gold thing on. But I also thought her Mark Seliger portrait had such a vibe of being like, you really think this is going to be the end of me? Like, I'll be back. I'll get I'll, either I'll get that Oscar or my life will be just fine without it. She had this great resilient attitude about She's her. She's going to be so good in That's Amore. <laughs> <laughs> she really is. I, I mean, I also, the other issue is the movies just couldn't be compared, you know? I, I just don't think that there was enthusiasm for The Wife, and there was a ton of enthusiasm for The Favorite. There were a lot of people who really loved The Favorite. 
if Olivia didn't win, no one would have, they would have walked away empty-handed completely for that film. Which I thought was shocking. Although it goes back to, I'm going to take a little credit. Remember when we watched it in Telluride, Richard, and it was with all those sort of like Colorado people. And I was like, I don't know that people west of like the Rockies are really going to get this movie. You know, it like crushed at the BAFTAs. It's very London, New York. Anyway, I'll stop. I'll I'll stop beating that horse now. (laughs) I was happy to realize that all the Best Picture nominees won one Oscar, which definitely didn't happen last year. I feel like it's happened several times where one of the nominees goes home empty-handed. So I like it when that spread happens. So do we want to talk a little bit about, about what is going to happen next? Nicole, you mentioned the postmortem that the Academy is going to have to kind of figure out what they should do. You imagine a lot of changes coming. Uh, they said the Best Popular Oscar may definitely return. We're going to have a shorter season next year for sure. The Oscar is going to happen earlier. Do, do we, what do we expect to learn from this season that's going to be reflected in next year's? Oh, I fear that they'll have learned nothing and it'll just be another year of disaster. <laughs> um, I don't know. I hope they learn how to better communicate. I really hope that that's where the focus is. And there's been talk about reducing the size of the board at the Academy, which I think is needed. They have some sort of executive committee that is making more decisions. I mean, once they expanded every branch to have three members instead of two, and then they had like three kind of diversity picks as well, the board has ballooned. If they can bring it down in size, they could probably get away with making more changes in a more thoughtful, effective manner. And I guess the silver lining in a weird way um, of all of this, all these months of controversy and outrage and whatnot, is that like it does indicate at least that people still care, you know, and it's not just journalists doing their job to kind of, you know, poke the nest and, you know, whatever. It's like there were just general film fans out there who were, you know, expressing themselves mostly online. But, you know, sort of either agreeing with decisions made or more often angry. But, like, at least the Academy, when it goes into kind of figuring these problems out, chief among them, the, their their sort of um, publicity arm, like, that, you know, there is investment there and that they have reason to make the changes because um, a lot of people uh, are still paying attention. That's the thing I always find so interesting about the Academy is they kind of want it both ways. They want to be seen as this worldwide esteemed organization that is at the forefront of movie making around the world, but then they also want to be like, we're just the Academy, we're just trying to put on a little show, and they can't have it both ways. They need to understand their influence, and they need to embrace it, and they need to like protect it, and I think, I just hope they can figure that out. This feels like an opportune moment to bring up that super annoying trolley article that Kyle Smith wrote for um, National Review. Did you guys read no. this? Basically saying, the Oscars are bas- are dead. Who cares? There were no movie stars. These are all character actors. We want larger-than-life people out of the Oscars, not Amy Poehler or not, you know, Olivia Colman. It was so obnoxious. Um, it's sort of like a lot of stuff Kyle writes, like, well done, enjoyably uh, rude, but, like, really misguided. And to your point, Richard, I think it's it is sort of like a, a f- nice takeaway to me, which is that there is a big rambunctious group of people who really care about this thing, and it's it's all headed in a different direction. This is not the Oscars of the '90s, as you know better than anybody, thanks to your um, careful recapping of of those um, old shows. But it's a new entertainment world, and it is driven a lot by the audience. The audience has a much bigger say than they than they did before, and you know a lot of character actors, but partially because they got famous on TV, and it's all sort of mixing together it's it's like i think it's cool it's, it's all going in an interesting direction katie i think you were you were saying it's fun that people have been listening to this show because we had so much crazy shit to talk about all season you know that the academy sort of 
blundering around was benefited us in the sense that it was really interesting for you know the whole season. Chaos is good for ratings. <laughs> Just ask CNN. Chaos is a ladder, my friend. <laughs> that, that's a good plug for our uh, forthcoming Game of Thrones coverage. Uh, <laughs> yes. Coming during Emmy season. Um, I want to close by, I asked uh, on our Little Goldman feed uh, some of our followers if they had any burning questions left from the season. Uh, so I wanted to maybe end by bringing up a couple of those. Um, the one that I thought was most interesting is... Um, from Beatrice Izumuno, in the long run, which Best Picture nominee will be the Brokeback to Green Book's crash? The one that should have won, but that ultimately profits from the sheen of injustice. Do you guys feel like there's an obvious answer to that? I feel torn between maybe Roma and A Star is Born here. Those are exactly the two I was going to say. You know, I think that there were some films like Can You Forgive Me that should have been nominated. Um, but I don't, yeah, I don't think there was, I don't think the narrative was clear enough. You know, I don't think it was a binary which is, you know, interesting because I mean that's kind of the reality we have because of the expanded best picture category. But no, I don't I don't think there's like a clear cut like green book beat blank. I mean, Roma, yes, I guess was the, was the next obvious choice and I think it's a far superior film, but I don't know that it has quite the sort of ardent fan base or or sort of its moment didn't seem quite as piquant as as Brokeback's did in 2005/6. Maybe um Black Panther and Black Klansman also will, I think, age better than, oh, than Green sure. Book. I mean, and, indeed, already. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, certainly, Black Panther. I mean, you know, there were there was a lot of talk over the course of the night that it could it could win, and uh, so I don't know. I mean, it certainly did a lot better than The Dark Knight, but maybe it's the Dark Knight of this year, and maybe Black Klansman is the do the right thing of this year, even though he he won the Oscar for screenplay, but. Uh, yeah, I, I do. I do question how well it, Green Book does feel like one of those Best Picture winners that you never watch again. There was another question, kind of uh, along the lines of Black Landsman versus Green Book, from uh, Joey Moser, who asked, "Do you think those screenplay wins indicate a transition in the membership of the Academy? Like Landsman winning, but then the older voters maybe voted for Green Book." To me, it's not quite so simple because Spike Lee kind of got a like um, not an honorary Oscar, but it was like a, a, a lifetime achievement win for Black Landsman. But I do think the idea of a, a, the split in the Academy it does feel like the older crowd really showed itself with the Green Book screenplay win in particular. I really think, though, it comes down to that preferential ballot that you can't forget about. That, like, you know, Green Book could have been, you know, everyone's third choice. Like, oh, this is the movie that made me feel good. And there were enough people that had it as their third choice. And the first two picks were not over 50%. So it won. Like, I think it's, it, it's not really like the old guard versus the young guard as much as it's this weird voting thing that makes it hard to analyze. But specifically in the, in the screenplay, the split screenplay wins, I do think that there, there is that, look, I mean, one thing that's interesting is is race, thanks to the lunatic in the White House, is an extremely, oh, not, not just thanks to him, thanks to a lot of other stuff too, is, you know, a really, really potent uh, topic right now. And, you know, a lot of the most interesting work is being is being done on that topic. These are two very different approaches. There's definitely, I, I, I do really think there's a kind of generation gap among progressives. It's all people who want to fight racism. It's just how they they see the way forward. But I also do think that there's a world of, of Green Book. Green Book succeeds with a couple of different groups. One is the group that just sort of uncritically enjoys the hell out of it. And then I think that there is a more sophisticated 
Hollywood creator who thinks, you know, if you think this is easy, you try making a movie that can reach millions and millions of people who aren't necessarily, you know, woke and aren't necessarily that sophisticated and delivers them a message um, that helps them try to want to be a slightly better person than they were before. I think that, you know, that's probably a different mode and maybe an older mode than the people who are like, it's time once and for all to smash the system, you know, and, and those are seem to me to be the two sort of approaches of, of those two films. And, and they're both, you know, I guess, effective on their own terms. Yeah, I think about George Clooney when he won his supporting actor Oscar for Syriana saying, I'm proud to be an out of touch you know, actor, a Hollywood person, because this we're the we're the industry that did you know X Y Z kind of, you know, talking about the sort of triumphs of representation of of the old Hollywood, and I think that the people you know like the, the latter camp you were describing uh, are sort of in that sort of mode of thinking. It's like it's it's hard to be populist with the message, you know, that, that yeah. that's that's um, that reaches people and could change hearts and minds. You can't be so granular about it. You can't be so you know. I think a younger generation would vehemently disagree with that, obviously, but like the, they're in as a thinking. I think. Yeah. All right, one last one, and then I think we can close things out from Lindsay Aramo. Any one movie you guys each had that didn't get any Oscar nominations that you guys want to shout out that I should check out before you move on to next year? Um, I know we've talked about a bunch of these over the course of the season, the things we love that didn't get nominated. I would just shout out Private Life, the Netflix film that didn't get a multi-million dollar marketing budget but is wonderful and available for everyone to watch right now. Yeah, it's wonderful. I would go with uh, Eighth Grade that needed much more love than it received. It was fabulous. Everyone should go watch it. Uh, yeah, my, my pick would be uh, Leave No Trace. Um, it's a great film by Deborah Granick, who we had um, on the podcast. We interviewed her if you want to go back and find that. It uh, was nominated for some Spirit Awards, but uh, sadly no, no Oscars and was one of the best movies of 2018. I'm going to dumb this down and say Blockers, which is now on HBO now. But also, that's um, what Joanna would say if she were here too. <laughs> <laughs> and the other one is The Hate You Give, uh, and was fun seeing Amanda oh, yeah. uh, around town, and and that's a really good movie that she's great in that it. could have used more love for sure. Russell Hornsby deserved a supporting actor for that one too. Yes, absolutely. Well, that does it for this week's episode. As ever, you can follow us on Little Gold Men and go to VF.com. We have a ton of Oscars coverage, including beautiful photographs by Mark Seliger and Justin Bishop and party reports by Julie Miller. And uh, I don't know, I'm sure there's some video lurking of me and Mike on the live <laughs> live stream. But uh, yeah, until then, uh, you can find me at Rylaws, Katie. I'm at Katie Rich. Mike. Mike underscore Hogan. And Nicole Sperling is at Nick Sperling, N-I-C Sperling. This episode was produced and edited by Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the best description of Little Gold Men's 2019 Webby strategy goes to Nicole Sperling. I don't think they'll ever be satisfied until they have total domination. <laughs>